Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hello and welcome back to Undermine Season 4. I'm your host, Tom Marshall. And as we said in episode one, which featured John Paluska, from now through December, we'll be tracking Fish's progression in the 1990s by focusing on 25 important shows of the 90s, all leading up to the tour that changed everything, fall of 1997. And we'll discuss every show of that particular tour. Our format this year is to do a brief dive into all these shows with the help of a co-host and with a special guest who is either at the show or can otherwise bring some knowledge about that era. And we're lucky to have, again, my co-host for today, Osiris co-founder and HF Pod host, RJB. Hello, RJ. Hello, Tom. Um, good to be back again. Uh, episode one was so much fun. And today we're going to be discussing one of the most famous fish shows of all time, which is August 3rd, 1991 at Amy's Farm in Auburn, Maine. This uh, three-set show, it was free to attend. It's synonymous with early stages of fish. And of course, we all had the tapes. Um, and we thought, who would be better to discuss this show with than the host of Amy's Farm, Amy Skelton. So we're going to bring her on in just one second. Um, I just want to say, 
Check us out on Apple. If you subscribe to Osiris Premium, it's $4.99 per month. You can get ad-free podcasts, bonus episodes, and more. So uh, support us there and, and support independent podcasting. All right, Tom, do you want to tell us a little bit about Amy before we bring her on? Sure. Well, the Osiris faithful um, have already heard Amy, I think twice. I think I had her on Under the Scales, and we probably had her on Undermine before. Um, and we're really honored and happy to have her back. Um, she needs no real introduction because she's been along literally since before there was a fish. Uh, you know, I, every now and then the dude and I pat each other on the back that, yeah, we were we were here before there was a fish. Well, Amy is in that uh, club and there's, you know, there's quite a few others that are still around and still consider themselves fish fans. But Amy, almost more than any of them. Um, so, you know, the early days uh amy hung around with john and fish at the university of vermont um and she remembers when trey met fish and she hung out as they got to know each other and uh eventually went to their practices and all their shows and even when she was the only audience member and i'd like to welcome amy amy welcome there she is hi, hi. amy hey guys how are you good to see you you're in Vermont at the at the moment, right? I am. No longer in Maine. No longer in Maine. I've I moved back. I moved to Vermont permanently in '97. Cool. Very cool. Although well, it's not exactly true, because then I took five years while the band was on hiatus. I had one of my own. I went to Nova Scotia for five years. Oh, those, cool. Those very same years. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, we're all lucky that you were in Maine when you were and had this amazing, beautiful farm that you had. One of the pretty much Fish's first festival, I guess, on yeah. it. Yeah. And so we're at least familiar with the early, early days when you knew, you know, John and, and Trey at UVM and you hung out with them as the band formed and became Fish. But um, that was in 83. And the show that we're talking about um, is eight years later. And so in between them, what happened after college? The band had left uh, University of Vermont and actually graduated from Goddard. Did you do the same? I graduated uh, same time in 87 and I was a horse person. So, you know, th all through college, I had a horse at school and I rode and competed and, you know, had I, I was pretty focused on on uh, having a, a stable of my own. And so I left college. Um, I worked for a year. Well, I had a, I had I had started Amy's farm in college, so I would go home in the summer, teach riding lessons, come back in the fall and go to school. So in 87, I graduated and then uh, stuck around Vermont, uh, New Hampshire for a year and then um, went to horseshoeing school um, in 1988. So I could be a full service horse person. Um, and right around that time, actually, I was running around with uh, the white tape demo and the, uh, you know, the promo pack for fish. And I had had, you know, I always had a couple of those in my car. you know, those were always around and the band had asked me right around somewhere in 88, whether I would manage. And I said, 
uh, I can't really do that right now because I'm going to horseshoeing school in the fall. And <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I think then, then that's when they asked Ben Hunter and, uh, you know, um, things moved on from there. But I went to horseshoeing school and then I came back and I opened my farm in 1989. I started my horse stable and it was a 21 stall barn in Maine. Um, and I taught riding lessons and I boarded horses and I had a stallion that I bred and, you know, that was my gig. I, I, I worked at my farm. So you, you, um, people like me that remember some of the early, early shows you were there, but that was not because you were working with the band yet, which no. you eventually did, but mm -hmm. it was because you were just friends and you went to the Northeastern shows like I did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I kind of thought you had like, uh, just cool. sort of been absorbed by fish immediately after school, but but that's not quite the case. No, um, but it did happen not too long, you know, later. Um, so in you know '89, I'm I'm fully in, immersed in the farm, and um, I would see shows when I could. But suddenly, I was really sort of tied down by this business that I had started. You know, it's a it's a tough one to just close the doors and run off and, and see a bunch of shows. So I would only get to see like one or two at a time because I was burdened by this thing. Um, so um, when the band would come through Maine or anywhere in New England, I would see them. But there, that was getting to be a smaller number of shows because the band was starting to tour all over the place. But I'd catch, you know, three or four or five. Yeah. Then um, the band came in November. Um, I think that was um they came through for colby college i think and a couple of other shows and came to my house after the show i had mentioned that i had this field and it would be i think it would be cool you know so they came and um uh checked out the the field uh the next day after the show and i actually put everybody on horses and we rode out there to check it check it out actually that that didn't happen until later the or no, that was when we rode out there. So we rode out to the horse, to the, the fish field on horseback um, with a group of my friends from the farm or people that worked for me. And everybody's on horseback and that all went really well. And we walked around the field and then on the return trip, the horses now headed for the barn, uh, started to trot and then they started to canter. <laughs> Dan can't ride very well. <laughs> now they're <laughs> cantering and then they're galloping and Trey is actually riding Maggie, who is the horse that got hoisted, but Maggie- uh, yeah. She's young and she's like full of, you know, piss and vinegar and starts walking. And anyway, they were like, I'm trying, I'm not allowing my horse to run ahead because, you know, I, I could lead them to their, if I could cause a race. So I'm holding back and I'm saying, pull back, pull back. <laughs> and thinking, Holy crap. I'm going to kill them. <laughs> You're going to be the one that breaks Trey's uh, hand, you know, it right before, right, right on tour. <laughs> he was always so worried. Uh, I, yeah, I have stories of of him thinking that I'm not treating his hands correctly. Right. Uh, and so I imagine that he he probably had envisioned a, a, a spill from a horse. You know, it's kind of funny because you see like when uh, the band surveys like Big Cypress or, um, you know, and loring air force base or something like that they always do it on atv vehicles but this was so far in the old days that it was horseback yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh more can you tell us a little bit about um you know a year ago uh, they were in colorado we just had that talk with with john um so a year later now like you said they they kind of um they had come through maine 
they surveyed this place. What what were they like? They're still like in a they're still in a van, right? They're still a, a small small. Yeah, van. at that point it was conversion vans. So they had um, I can't remember if they had graduated to two vans or one, but they at least had the one van um, and and the and the box truck. Um, did they, was that jump at that point or the, there, there was a prior box truck that was less good. I think they, <laughs> they had the, they had the less good truck maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and the conversion vans. Right. Um, so that's how they were touring. Um, and then, you know, we, I, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but they, they toured the field. We checked it out. We thought it would be a fun idea, sort of planted the seed, put it in the back of our minds. And I don't think it was until the spring when we kind of got more serious about it, they came through one more time and walked and talked in the spring in May after another show. And we walked the field that time safely <laughs> and looked at it again and talked really about, you know, more about like what I would have to do um, to, to pull this thing off. Um, and then we all decided it was a good idea. And um, I went and talked to the town and, you know, tried to figure out what I had to do to make this go. And, um, and then eventually we you know, wrote that postcard and sent it out to the fans and, and did that. Um, so I didn't work for them until um, the following spring really was the beginning in spring of 92. Um, do you want to talk about that? Is that, or do you want to go back to Amy's farm? Yeah. I, well, I want to ask you just when you're putting this together, just because you had, you'd been connected with them so much earlier and then you, you know, are still in touch and they come back. Like, did they seem different as a, as a band from, from the college days? Like, because I think now you see them on stage and you see them touring and they're so like, clearly they're so well-practiced and they're, they're so focused and they're so like um, obsessive with how they do their thing. Like, I'm just wondering, did anything change between the college days and 91 when, when this came together or were they still kind of like the same people you knew back in college? Cause a lot had changed for them between that time. I would say they've, you know, it wasn't until, I don't, I don't think they've changed much as people at all. You know, like I, I think they are still, they're, they're still true to their essential natures all, all the way back. Wouldn't you say so, Tom? Uh, no question. Yeah. I mean, you can... <laughs> like, there's no change at all. <laughs> <laughs> Especially like John, when I hear him doing that, that, that silly intro, he's just like that still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, you know, they they were uh, definitely thinking more about, you know, the the direction of this thing and yeah. um, not necessarily strategy, but like what they were excited to do and places they were excited to play, yeah. and how they were excited to play. And, you know, thinking about the quality of the shows because they could think about it, like suddenly they could, you know, pick and choose instead of being just squashed into some bar, you know. Um, so they were thinking about that stuff, but no, I'd say their essential nature was just, you, the same. just the same. Yeah. Um, you, you talked a little bit about going to town and possibly getting permits or whatever to me, like Vermont is almost like the South, like you don't really need permits or you don't really need, uh, uh, permission to do anything like this. Um, uh, you know, I'm in New Jersey, the land of permits, anything right. takes paperwork, but, but Vermont was a little bit more lax, but, but really like, uh, like how many people were you expecting? And, and do you have to have like 
mandatory bathrooms and and parking. There's camping. That's complex. People need food. Like how how do you how do you get that set up? Yeah, (laughs) we we um. I looked at it like a you know I'd been to certainly you know camping music things. Um, Yeah, I I kind of knew what we were gonna gonna experience. Um, We didn't. We did have some food there. Um, there was a couple of, um, trucks there that had, had food. Um, but the, I, I knew that we would need water. And then when I went to the town, they said the same thing, you got to have potable water. Mm. And when they said potable, I was like, oh, right. You know, like you can't just have water. There has to be like, you know, a, a safe source. So that we were, you know, we brought in a big truck of potable water, like a, just a big tanker truck full of water. Um, and they said there needed to be egress, like fire, like for the for a fire engine in case there was some sort of an emergency, or they had to send an ambulance or a fire truck in there. There had to be, uh, a, you know, a way for those vehicles to safely get in and out and not, you know, not through a, cr- a crush of people. Right. So um, that did change the way we approached the field. There was only one tractor road in, and we decided, you know, since it was sort of kind of um, appropriate for a large vehicle that we could send, you know, we'd set, set that aside and have that be the, the access road. And then we sent the people through a trail that we blazed off to the right. Um, but, you know, with the tractor road we had was completely insufficient for a fire truck. So um, <laughs> and being, you know, barely out of college kids you know we just cobbled together like we got more culverts we got more rock from wherever and we mm. built ourselves you know uh uh because the the road had to co- go across a creek so we had to put in a you know big culvert and rock and reinforce and make it a lot wider um in order to get the so we had to do stuff like that um but back to permits we didn't have to get one um they the town had no idea what to do with my, you know, when I came in the door and I said, I'm having a big party and it's, everybody's going to camp and there's going to be a band and they're going to play till, you know, probably midnight or whenever they play till. And, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be some noise and there's going to be a lot of cars. They're all going to be parked on my land. Do I need to, you know, do you guys need to know? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know if we need to know. No one's ever asked that before. <laughs> and it probably took them three weeks or four weeks maybe to get back to me. And what they said was, we don't have any any mass gathering ordinance. We don't have it on the books, but these are the things you need for safety. Oh, um, cool. So um, that's what we did. That's amazing. <laughs> Amy, can I just ask, so when, it sounds like a, you sound pretty chill about it at this point, looking back, but like, was it, this sounds like, it, was it like a full-time job for a couple months? Like actually getting this going because <laughs> no. like, yeah, just build some culverts and get some rock and build some bridges. And, I mean, it sounds like, was it nerve wracking getting it together? No, it actually wasn't. I had a, I lived, I had, um, I lived on my farm and I had a couple of roommates. One of my roommates was a, another young guy and he was a construction worker. He, he, he was a concrete guy. And he lived in one of the rooms in my farmhouse and um, he was awesome, um, Tom Sheehan. And he um, helped a lot. Uh, another guy, Chris Dyson, who was a, a friend of mine from Vermont, was living on the farm that summer working for me. And Chris helped uh, you know, a ton. And they were both like, liked the music. You know, Chris was a big fan. He'd been to the Squam Lake Steakhouse and lots of other gigs you know, along the way. And so uh, he, you know, they were motivated and we all just did that on our, you know, kind of on our weekends, like, oh, we got to cut that. We got to blaze that trail. We got to, uh, you know, make sure it's mowed at the right time so that it's not too stubbly. And, 
you know, we got to build that road when we get to it. So we sort of, you know, gathered um, materials. We had to cut down a bunch of trees to make the stage. Um, we had to like, you know, we had, it required lumber. Um, <laughs> and, we, you know, we, nobody wanted to pay for it. So we were like just scrapping together lumber to build stuff. <laughs> we literally just hodgepodge that stage together um, out of, you know, who knows what. Um, but it, it, no, it wasn't, uh, it, it was, we built, I built so much stuff on my stable, like, you know, miles of fence and, mm -hmm, stalls mm -hmm. and big run-in sheds that building a stage and, you know, doing a little bit of advancing was no big deal. Nice. That's, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I guess if you're like, if you have an actual farm, you're used to doing stuff all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, Which and makes sense. Know, we had a post hole digger on the tractor and, you know, we could, we could do these things. So. That's incredible. Um, well, so we're going to keep talking with Amy. First, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And just like that, we're back from our break. We're talking <laughs> with Amy Skelton. Uh, RJ, do you want to kick off this next segment? Yeah. So, Amy, you mentioned that you we're going to get back to to Amy's farm um, and talk about the show a little bit. But I guess, can you just tell us what what happened in, in the early 92? So that's that's when you started really working with the band and, and going on tour. Right. So this, yeah. you kind of were, were connected, then disconnected, then reconnected. And, and you, you came back and, and started working with them. Yeah. So in, in the spring of 92, um, I've still got my, you know, my horse farm going and, you know, it's, it's, uh, in Maine. So it, in the winter time, it's cold and frozen and there's, you know, no lessons to teach because it's too cold. So there's downtime. There's like this, period of time where you don't make a lot of money and there's, you know, like just kind of holding pattern. So spring 92 comes around and one of my friends came up, he said, you know, Hey, do you have any work for me? And I said, sure, I've got, you know, we got to build this stuff. So you come on up and you can build with me. And so he came and I said, while we were building, he said he was saving money to go on tour because he was going out West to do the California tour. And I was like, I can't believe it. Like you like I'm paying you so you can buy a plane ticket so you can fly out West and see the, see the band. Like, this is so unfair. And, and I was thinking, <laughs> and it wasn't unfair, but I was like, so jealous. And so he, you know, he came, he worked, he left. And then I'm at home and I'm thinking, Oh my God, I'm just going to go. And so I figured out how to cover and got my ticket and flew out and, you know, before cell phones and before, you know, so the band doesn't know I'm coming, but I know that once I get there, I'll have a place to stay. Like I'm confident that I can crash, you know, in the van or wherever they're staying. Like I'm confident about that. Plus I have friends in the road. I don't, you know, I'll see them when I get there cause I can't reach them, but I know they're there. So I fly out to San Fran and I went to those, those 92, that first 92 show. And, um, that's what, so I ended up um, riding with the band vans and the truck for the rest of that tour up to um, Washington State and doing, I don't know how long those gigs were. It was probably like a week maybe or six or seven or eight shows or something.
that whole time with a band or with my friends. Sometimes I would get off and like go hang with my friends for a couple of days, depending upon who was doing what. But during that time, um, the band is driving. There's two conversion bands and there's four crew, I think. Um, and the, so there's eight people that have to move plus the truck that have uh, the truck full of gear. So, you know, there's a couple of people that have to, three people that have to drive every night. And then there's a bunch of, you know, tons of work to do. And they, they only had exactly, you know, they've just got the band and four band and four crew, which was Paul, Toph, um, Brad, and uh, Pete Shaw. Oh, and Andrew Fishbeck. Um, so there's only the five of them doing everything and there's, they've all got specific jobs. So there was a whole bunch of things that needed to be done, um, like the jobs of a runner really, or the jobs of, of, a, of um, uh, you know, a tour assistant. It's like, you know, advancing things that are, that we need at the next gig or, you know, arranging stuff. The band's van got broken into and a bunch of, uh, they lost some instruments and there was a, now the van's got a big broken window. So, you know, I called ahead and got like a, a custom window shipped to like, I don't know, Oregon or something. And then um, got a, you know, uh, auto body place or auto place to put the window in. So I arranged all of that and I'm walking the Marmar and, you know, like just everybody's helping out, you know, like, <laughs> and getting things done. And at the end of that, you know, little stretch, they asked, you know, you should, do you want to come back on tour? And I said, Oh, I don't know about that. Like I gotta go, <laughs> I gotta go back to the horse farm, you know, but I'd had a ball. It was really fun. And, you know, I'm like, Oh, that was the best, you know, working. I was, I wasn't working. I was just, you know, goofing off, but I had a great time. And then, um, that summer, they asked if I wanted to do the fall tour, which began in November, um, November 92. And uh, that's just around the time when riding lessons wind down. And that uh. tour was going to go from November to May during those per that period of like snow and not much going on on the farm. Um, so at that point, I had a full-time trainer on the farm uh, living there, and she was excited to manage the place. So I went on tour for, you know, in a working capacity for the first time in that fall in that that period do you do you remember the music from that spring 92 tour because i remember some of the first tapes i got were like the 416 92 show from california and then there's the warfield and the palo alto and santa cruz there's so many of these are like legendary really shows. shows yeah they were really good shows Is there anything that like, do you remember like seeing them? Cause you, you'd seen them so much and this is sort of a different environment and really the first time that they got out to California. And like, do you remember the environment? Like, was it a lot of new people or were people traveling to definitely see them? A lot of new people there, were, you know, there was definitely um, a, a lot more people than I was used to sort of standing and watching, but everybody was, you know, like it was most people who ended up at a fish show, it seemed like got there for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, most, I won't say all the time, but most of the time people had some vibe and groove who showed up at fish shows and could, could, could dance, you know, 
so even if they were slow to start and didn't get the music when it would first start, you know, eventually the, a jam would plug in and then they would plug in and then <laughs> the place would, you know, would all be moving, moving, moving like it should. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I do remember lots of people being introduced uh, and just watching and absorbing. And um, I remember being extremely proud that, you know, the, the band that I loved was in California playing these, you know, these venues that I'd heard about and read about. And, you know, I was I was pretty stoked. There was a little tiny danger being in California, the dead territory that yeah that yeah that like they were infringing on the territory but it seemed like that, that turned out not to be an issue that turned out not to be an issue at all yeah, <laughs> yeah. um amy we we got a a question from uh from a listener when we said we were talking to you and um i guess when when did you stop touring with the band and and how did that how did that journey conclude um, I stopped, um, really in 97, um, uh, the band or John Paluska, uh, asked if I wanted to, um, come and work for the, in the office, um, as the head of, of tour merchandising and wholesale merchandising, because that was a growing, um, a growing thing, you know, like that, that needed, uh, somebody to, to take that on. Um, and I'd been on the road for five years and a lot of shows. Um, and I was touring with other bands in between fish. So, um, eventually, uh, because of, you know, the way the touring was structured as the band grew from 92 to 97, um, they toured less and there was more time in, in between. So I ended up working for a, a big merchandising company and was doing these other tours. So I was on the road for like 10 months of the year, four or five years straight, um, like always, you know, always at a show somewhere, except for in January and February. So when they asked, asked me to, you know, to take that role, I was excited to move back to, um, uh, to be sitting still and enjoy my horses and enjoy, you know, have chickens out my door and go to work and come home at the end of the day. That's amazing. So you were, I mean, you were part of this, obviously during this period of intense growth and, um, I mean, amazing trajectory. What, I guess it's probably hard to summarize what that five or six years was like, but what is it, what is it like looking back on it at this point? Oh my gosh. I mean, we started off like, um, you know, playing, you know, all, we were, you know, everywhere in the country. And so there were, you know, we were going from like at the beginning, like clubs, like, you know, clubs, which had like, really small stages that were really hard to rig with sound and lights. And, you know, there wasn't enough room for the gear or there wasn't, you know, there was compromises, you know, between Corota and Paul and, you know, which today we've only got the opportunity to have these, you know, the sound here or the lights there, you know, which is it going to be? And so you'd have like all this tension in these small places on how to set it up and what takes precedence lights are, you know, or the best sound, you know, and it was, a, that was a tough decision, you know, like night to night. And, and it would go like small, big, small, big, you know, from one, one night to the next, it seemed like you'd be in a hockey arena and then back to a club in, in, you know, uh, St. Louis or something. And then 
uh, Texas, you know, we were, I remember playing in that, I don't remember the names of all these venues. I have to look at lists to, to remember. I'm like, oh yeah, I know what that place was. But like, there was one place in Texas with like a, you know, a dirt floor and, and like, you know, really low, you know, wooden stage. It was, it's probably like a classic venue and I have to look at the list to see which one, but there were just such a wide variety at the beginning. And then we started to just pay, play all bigger venues. Um, and we were learning so much. We went from having our very first tour bus and a truck to, you know, several buses and a, a bunch of trucks. And we went <laughs> from having, from me being the production manager on my first tour to, to, to you know, having, uh, a, you know, uh, we had a couple different production managers during that time and learned so much about tour management and production and, um, you know, went from having this tiny crew to having, you know, 40 yeah. <laughs> and it's just such growth and such a learning curve for everybody in the organization as we just figured all this stuff out. And that was, was up to, that was up to, that was up to 1997. Yeah. But, um, it, and in then it continued because I still worked in the office and oh, right. know, I was still right. the, like I, I still remained the the head of like tour merchandising through 2004 through Coventry. So right. I was still, you know, out at a lot of shows, um, you know, making sure everything was going well and keeping my finger on the pulse and, you know, just being in, involved. So that's really cool. So, so much change. Yeah. Rewinding. And so many big gigs in between there. You know, yeah. So many, <laughs> so well, many yeah. festivals. <laughs> so many festivals. I was going to say that's sort of like, and that to me is kind of when people say, you know, what's the significance of this show? Why is Amy's farm so famous? And what is the significance really, if you had to, if you had to break it down and it really kind of does. And I, and I alluded to this in the beginning, it really sort of set the groundwork for uh, how to do a festival and mm -hmm. fish, of course, seemed with, you know, Clifford ball to already know how, and <laughs> it was like, it was like a combination of having been to a, a couple good ones of their own and, and bread and puppet, uh, you know, in, in Vermont yeah. and, and uh, Amy's farm and, and, and boom, suddenly they were experts and everyone learned from fish how to do it. But yeah. would you well, agree that, that this was kind of like the beginning of all that? I think so. I think it was the beginning of the realization that we could, you know, like that you could, we could do this and, you know, like it, it planted a seed and wasn't the beginning of the learning really. Um, it, Cause my event was just really such a hodgepodge of a hodgepodge, you know, born of love. But, um, but they, I think that it did plant the seed that it was possible to, you know, find a space and do your own thing in your own way. And that would be special. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I would, I just, before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention just a couple of the, the musical highlights. I mean, this is a three set show that, um, Amy, I don't know how clear your memories were of the music, but I'm sure you've listened back at some point. Have you listened back to it like over the years? I, I have, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, my, this is going to sound really archaic, but my, I just was reconnected with my tape collection, which nice. is awesome. <laughs> That's great. That's so good. <laughs> like they just came back into my life and uh, I've been like, you know, just starting to, to listen again. I mean, I've got tons of fish, but it's, I don't have like the shows that I listen to tons growing, you know, as, as, as I 
came through my own fish discovery. And um, I, I listened to Amy's Farm a zillion times after that show and through the years, but I I haven't had it, you know, like I haven't yeah. had access to it. Um, so it's only uh, just recently that, uh, I, that I've played it. And then that video came out a couple of years ago, which was... Yeah really fun because there's you know Amazing. people that i know like oh my god there's you know a friend of mine who only dances like that and like <laughs> that's so funny you know just like just seeing seeing that stuff was funny <laughs> Yeah, the I, I love the the first set. I mean, there's so much music in here, but the first set there's this kind of classic early '90s combo of Wilson, Foam, Runaway Jim in, at the beginning, and I just I love yeah, this. My, it, those were yeah. it's so such a great combo, and the Foam is like this. It's just a good example of how much they evolved. Like that song is I don't know three years old at that point, but there's this like precision with the playing, but it's also there's a lot of space, and same with the Runaway Jim. I feel like in the first three songs, you can just feel like how much this band is growing and how, I don't know how dedicated they are to, to the craft, you know, and that, it's really cool that, 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 that you were able to host that. And, um, and that, you know, hundreds and uh, hundreds and thousands of people have these tapes and, you know, now, and now everyone can listen to it yeah. on the internet, but um, this, this I, helped turn a lot of people on, I think. I, I agree. And it's, it's, it's like, if you're going to get one tape, of this era, this is a good one because it's kind of a smorgasbord of of all their songs because it was three yeah. sets, so they had to play a lot of their songs, and <laughs> um, it, it, they every single one they played so well. I mean, they were obviously enthused, and the the energy doesn't stop at all. And and I, I know um, RJ that you mentioned you mentioned foam. Um, did you mention foam? He did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Foam was, is one that's like in the jam charts or whatever. That's like one, yep. that's, but Reba is another. Yeah. And I decided, all right, I got to go back and listen to Reba, even though I've probably heard it a hundred times. Um, and there is something kind of special now that I think about it. And I was listening kind of critically about the way Trey's playing it, a strange sort of bendy guitar style that I don't know that he was really playing that much with uh, even a year before. sort of something new that he introduced a country bendy weird style especially uh evident in that foam jam the foam jam is only like three minutes long but listen to that it's very interesting mm -hmm. there was some country bendy stuff going on right around that era you know they were definitely sampling you know sampling yeah. some stuff and um some more bluegrass and yeah totally yeah. And, yeah. and i i also just like it kind of amy because of what you said about um you know a lot of my friends uh were that i was not there but like hearing um you know the dude and uh sophie sophie, sophie. who who wasn't Paige's wife yet right uh, it was just sophie diloff come on 
uh, for the extended encore. You know, these are like my pals. And yeah. it, it, so I love it. It, it always brings back, it, it gives me a great feeling listening to the, this, this show. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I played a little bit of it last night and it was uh, on the video uh, video. I pulled up that video, which I hadn't seen since when it first came out, I watched the whole thing a couple of times and I hadn't seen it and it was fun. Yeah. This is amazing, Amy. And thank you for, for joining us and going back back down memory lane we we might call on you later to to talk about to talk about some more yeah. some more of your fish experience yeah we might we might bring you back oh sorry i interrupted you but i was going to say we might bring you back later uh this season we, we're doing a 47 shows or something like that amy really? <laughs> yeah oh, wow. talking, yeah talking about the 90s but thank you so very much uh for talking to us about this uh you know amazing show august 3rd 1991 otherwise known as amy's farm everyone <laughs> knows it check it out um, and remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. On the next episode, we'll be stepping further uh, forward into 1992 to talk about another step in Fish's career. So thank you, Amy. And until then, blaze on. Osiris. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love or want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast